Welcome to the Wealth Radar podcast, where we scan the landscape and navigate the noise of investing and personal wealth. I'm Jason Fowler, and I'm joined by my brother Paul. We're certified financial planners from Fowler's Group, and in this episode, we'll be chatting with our first returning guest, legal extraordinaire Lakbir Singh. Welcome back, Lakbir. Hi, guys. Great to be back. Yeah, welcome back for a second time, Lakbir. And actually, after the uh, part one, I guess of this business series, it. Uh, triggered me and made me reach out actually to a, a good mate of mine and actually a good client, a good mate first, um, and has a really successful business here in Cairns now. Um, but we spoke about the first two two phases of business and we'll get into the, the meaty bit today, which is the third stage, but um, he's probably in that second stage, the pre-exit stage and really successful now. But the thing that hit on me, he did go through those really tough times as a business over owner doing a lot of work for not a lot of reward and now reaping it down the track. So um, we are going to get him onto the podcast, actually, and that was the, the reason behind this, and I'm not going to reveal his name yet. It's a little bit of a surprise. But before we get into it, let's just recap on that uh, first episode we did um, where we spoke about, and we'll just um, tick off a couple of the key yep. points that we took from it. We spoke about the, the early setup stage and also the, the pre-exit stage, sorry, as we, we spoke about. Um, we talk about the early setup stage. I guess the, the key takeouts for me is sort of – Planning for the for sex for success early, um, managing risk and reward, and being aware of that. Um, but I think the overriding thing was more importantly was get uh, quality advice early and do the planning early and, and um, have your structures and business structures set up. Would that be a short but sweet? But to the point. Anything else there, Lucky? Absolutely spot on. If I was trying to summarise, it's plan, execute, reformulate, and go again. Yep. Awesome. And then I think that the coming on from that, the next bit that we talk about was once we've got structures in place and we've identified that a transition of some form is going to happen, it was then about, um, you said, getting appropriate valuations early so that there's an understanding of what might happen and some consequences. Obviously, the biggest thing was identifying potential buyers, whether that was an internal internal person, an external person, whether there was a skill set or whether it was capital that needed to come. And then if it was internal, I think the big tip that came out of that was taking time to stage and transition that, not trying to do it all at once. So do, getting people to develop that mindset of business ownership. And then the most important thing you alluded to was once those pieces are in place, make sure you take time to structure the deal and thrash out the nitty gritty and get everything on the table early. As I say, everything good takes time in life. And <laughs> as we've just done in that summary, there's a lot behind that and it all takes time. So it's a matter of getting cracking on it earlier rather than later. Now, luck be it. Let's get into the the meat of today's topic, and um, in your words, the the good bit, um, which is the Edzik strategy. And you, you did speak about a few success stories in the in the previous episode. Um, but we're now we're at the stage where the the deal's actually done. So what? Um, and I, I assume all legs aren't the same. But what are the key issues you see or thoughts? Um, that go through the, the client's heads or the exiting the, the, the seller's heads, immediately signing the, the deal, I guess. Part of it is the challenge to actually let go. There's a very strong emotional attachment to your child, effectively, your business. Yep. And part of what we as advisors need to be very mindful of is the fact that they're having to let go of that. And so you're, you're trying to appreciate that. You're trying to make sure that they're comfortable through that process and you're also very respectful that there is an emotional attachment and we need to be working with them for them to be able to let go as well. So it's a, it's a funny sort of side item to be aware of. 
But the key then is they've generated this wealth and they start thinking about, okay, what do I do now? What's this next phase look like in terms of the wealth I've generated? What should I be doing? Who should be potentially a beneficiary of that? How can I look after my family, my children? And what does it look like if I pass away? What happens then? And those are the questions that will be great to, to discuss today. Yeah, right. And I think that one of the things you touched on, or we touched on, is that there's potentially two types of exits, right? So there's the, the exit where the deal is done and maybe it's just a big cash amount or some form of asset created. And in, in I'm sure not immediately in most cases, but in a lot of cases, it's a very rapid exit from the business. And then there's that sort of the deal is done and, and um, control's been passed, but it's sort of a wean out and maybe mm. the cash comes over a longer period of time or or maybe there's no cash because it's a family transition and it's sort of a benefit thing. So, so you want to touch on the, the differences in both of those? Is there anything yeah, yeah. significant? So uh, quite often a deal is structured on the basis that there is a significant cash payment at completion and then there is some subsequent payment later. It could be structured as a earnout, or it could be structured as a, a holdback. So an earnout is a, a formula that's included in the agreement, which is based on the future earnings post-completion, which may be a period of one to three, to three years, and based on the business performing at a particular level, then a percentage of that or amount would be paid to the seller. What that's designed to do is it's designed to ensure that the buyer achieves a return on the business that it requires in order to pay that extra bit, yep. which is usually the reason the deal gets over the line. Yep. Because one party believes it's worth more and the other party believes it's worth less. But a buyer that's very keen to do a deal will do the deal if they have that risk managed and the earnout manages that risk for them. The holdback is usually structured on the basis of certain conditions uh, and they vary depending on the type of industry and the nature of the deal that's involved. Um, it could be a retention which is linked to uh, the performance of a particular contract. Uh, the retention could be linked to a key employee staying for a period of time. So that kind of holdback, which is that second scenario, usually is linked to a particular condition, uh, one that's very clear and concise. And obviously the seller believes there is normally low risk on it. Like Beer, with in, in that instance, do you, do you see the occasions in the, in the holdback where the seller um, is actually still involved in the business for another 12 months or 24 months sale? That's, that's part of the deal to reach those, those KPIs. Um, I was only talking to a fellow this morning over at coffee and um, they've just gone through, the business he's involved with has just gone through that and the, the seller um, is, is still in the business, but the, and I think we spoke about it in the, the previous uh, episode, the, the culture of the people that have come into the business and the way they operate and the way they deal with the clients is in um, vast contrast to how he would deal. He doesn't feel comfortable that he's, the clients are being looked after and, and now at a point where it's almost like, I want to buy back in and fix this <laughs> up again. You know, you know do you, is that like a psychological thing that you see where, you know, how do I... Like you said before, how do you get let go of the business even though you're not yeah, mentally? I've seen many examples of you know, multinationals acquiring businesses in regional areas and underperforming and not appreciating what were the key aspects of success for that business. And you can see the, the founder and the seller shaking their head and obviously getting upset. Mm. But at the end of the day, that's part of the discussion in the letting go process 
it's no longer your business. Conversely, there may be an opportunity if they nosedive to a point where they start to exit. If you want, you might be able to pick it up cheap and go again. Uh, so there's always opportunity, but it's really about that emotional attachment being let go. And I think I just want to touch a little bit more on that, that psychology, right? So we, we hit an episode where we talked about retirement and the biggest challenge we see for people, for most people in retirement, if they plan well, it's not about the money. It's about actually understanding what they just transitioned to and the, the fact that for a lot of people, their life is now has a different purpose, has a different meaning. And it tends to be a confronting type conversation to have with a client. Like they don't necessarily expect it from someone. Okay, yeah, that's cool. The money's going to be, but what are you going to do? Where are you going to spend your time? What do you mean? And, and, and I guess that's part of this process or is that, do you see that as one of the biggest challenges, particularly when this is, as you said, this has been their life, but they almost see it as one of their kids, one of their family, and to actually let go and someone might stuff it up. Like how does that work? Yeah, it is a conundrum. Usually what we try to do is have that conversation of playing out how will you feel, the what-if scenario. You know, what if you exit and you have these scenarios play out with the business? How will you feel? What will be your reactions? Will you regret it? Would you have done something different today? So it's all part of ensuring that a client in that seller hat on is considering those factors and is making informed decisions. Part of the post-settlement tuition period or involvement period can vary and that potentially is a good thing or a negative thing. Some people just want, I'm out and I don't want to be involved. Mm -hmm. Others quite like the idea of being involved for a period of time. As a general flavor, you tend to see larger national listed entities that are acquiring, probably having shorter terms for any sellers to remain on board, whereas private equity were looking for much longer term. Mm -hmm. So you might be there for potentially several years. Um, so that's the, that's the spectrum and it, that's all part of the deal profile and every deal is different in its own nature because sellers, buyers have different objectives and it's all about meshing that together and from a seller point of view, getting to a point where you can live with that and you will be happy with that and you'll not have regrets. Okay. So, so the deal is done and the money's in the bank. What, what do you see? What, what are clients do with the money because my take on it that you're not they're an entrepreneur they built a successful business they've, they've driven this this beast um they've got that attitude that they've they've built something and now they've got money in the bank i guess my question is what do they do with that money because I, I would imagine they still have that mindset of you know being a, a go-getter a driver get out do they do they need to plan around that to what they actually do with it where they put it or how they do it or they what do you see are the, the main points there that that people deal with their money or what they want to deal with not too many Lamborghinis are being bought from what I see. Uh, but generally from what I've seen, the, the profile of people that have built a business from scratch over time is that they are very cl clear on their fundamental principles. They are very strong in their savings ethic. They are very considered in their spending. They'll have their indulgences and there'll be one or two of those and there'll be degrees of extremism. But generally people are frugal in the general sense you know they're very concerned and considered about the way they go about spending their money which is a great thing and that mm. this next phase is then really about getting some great investment advice and getting that in a allocation strategy that fits with their profile and then there's the consideration around what does it mean for their family what does it mean for their children how do they give back to the community and that becomes part of their estate planning process, you want to call that under a general umbrella. Mm. 
The other part that I do want to raise also is a bit of risk. And I've seen this happen in a few scenarios where people become aware that, you know, this person's exited and they, they knew they had a successful business, but suddenly in the papers, these numbers are getting thrown around. Um, yeah. And, you know, you're, you're, you've got a neighbor and you're, you're trying to fix your fence and suddenly you end up in a bit of a, a stoush over the over that fence or conversely, you know, you're out for a dinner and, you know, you go for a few drinks afterwards and you need a bit of a altercation and next thing you've got a claim against you for assault, personal injuries claim, um, seeking damages against you individually because suddenly people know that you have money. So one of the tips I always give is to make sure you're very aware about the fact that you now have profile mm. and potentially that brings into purview people that you never thought could bring claims against you, which is also going back to then thinking again about your structuring. Where is that money gone? Has it gone into companies and trust, which is generally where it is and making sure you're protecting yourself, but also being very aware of your environment. It's amazing, isn't it? And, and you hear about that sort of thing, but you know, people that are, are willing to, you know, go someone primarily because they they're, they're successful Easy and have target. cash in the bank. Is that something you've seen more so over the last decade, couple of decades, or do you think it's something that's it's always been there, but probably just more prevalent now that we see it in the media and I think every, Facebook and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, I think every, out there a bit more. Everything over time accelerates as knowledge expands, mm. and you know we've seen the last twenty years the knowledge base has been provided to everyone. Anyone can Google anything and suddenly, you know, you can become a semi-expert and that awareness always brings opportunity for yeah. people yeah. and opportunistic people potentially can do anything. So, and, you know, you've always got to be managing that risk. One of the other things that I think about, and again, in some ways, it's a bit like retirement, only it's, this is a, sometimes a large, larger sums of money. It's like an immediate event is that a lot of people, as we talked about in the first episode, have been in business. It's not they haven't been successful from day one. They've mm. been through most people have been through massive roller coaster rides and have had lots of pe periods of time where it really had to watch every dollar that went into the bank account. Which then doesn't surprise me when you said most people who do this, this they're still very frugal about how they spend their money, right? Because they understand the other side of that. But one of the things that I have seen is because of that, the business was really. In lots of ways, it was an income generating asset, right? It, it gave them the means to do the things they mm. could. Now they have, it's been converted into a capital amount, which in 99% of cases is never going to generate the sort of income that the business did, right? Because they're different animals, right? There's a difference between being actively investing in a business and generating income and passively investing in assets, whatever they may be, money in a bank account, houses, shares, doesn't matter. They're never the same re income return profile. And so it sort of changes a little bit of the focus, the way people think. But also, um, I wonder whether it also, they look at this capital and go, right, well, I've never had capital. How do I start imparting some of this capital to other either members of my family or ultimately if the number is so big that they're never going to spend it for the benefit of legacy or the community? Is that something that you see? And how does that journey play out? Yeah, it's part of the mix of the conversation about what's the lifestyle you're looking to achieve upon this exit and is this sum going to be sufficient and how does that actually play out from that income point of view? I think the other overlay is the psyche of, you know, what does wealth mean at the end of your life? And generally from what I've seen is people are looking to preserve their capital for the next generation as opposed to, you know, super or even you know, accumulated wealth being used during your lifetime to fund the lifestyle you want. Mm -hmm. And I think therein lies the conundrum. 
if you were to take capital by itself and then allocate that out for the balance of your life and spend that with the income also generated, you would generally, from a business point of view, exiting at a decent level, have a very good lifestyle. Yep. But I think it's that psychological desire to preserve the capital and live off only the income that creates that dilemma. Yeah, and it's big for some people, right? It's, it, that's the thing that fascinates me is that they, they go, well, I, at some level I want this and I go, well, but I want to keep this so that generation two, generation three gets the money and, and they're just nine times out of ten, they're, they're, they're at massive competing forces and mm. it becomes that challenge and that conversation because I think there is a lot of, I worked hard I've, got, I've been successful and, and whilst not everyone's successful, you don't want to make it easier for the next generation, but there's enough in the media about it's almost impossible to buy a house and all that sort of stuff that you want to not have them struggle but not gift the golden spoon, right? But, it, but, but it, it, it's almost in the experience I have, it's, when you talk about the next generation, it's it's not necessarily the kids. It's the grandkids. It's the, it's the kids of the kids. It's the mm. grand. They sort of skip the kid generation. It's, <laughs> they're, 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 I'm not saying they do, but... The real folks in the world, that it's the grandkids. Are they going to be um, okay? Um, I see that a bit. Um, and that's where your, your estate planning kicks in and you've got two parts to it. You've got your during life bequeathing, gifting, and how do I help my kids and grandchildren? The, the key challenge there is the amount you're handing over and what's the implications of that. So if we take, for instance giving your a child a significant amount of money to help them buy their first house, how, how should that be managed? What's the most appropriate way? So the considerations we're always going through and the dilemmas that are being discussed is, does that child have some personal risk and exposure? So such that the money you give could potentially be taken by somebody else. And so what that means is, for instance, if your child runs a business, and as we know, is given personal guarantees and there's other creditors in play, is there a risk that the property that they're buying their own name, which has potential personal guarantee, contingency, liability and risk, could be taken ultimately on account by those creditors and it's part of, your, part of that's your money. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, spousal separation is always a big consideration and discussion that we have. You know, what happens if the spouse of your child and have a separation? How does the fact that you've gifted money get counted in the family mm-hmm. pool uh, and ensuring that it doesn't get counted in the family pool and therefore ensuring that it's ultimately still to the maximum benefit of your child. So in those scenarios, you know, formally entering into a loan agreement, security, having a security arrangement for that loan through a mortgage or other security arrangements is the appropriate way. And then you can manage that through your post-F estate planning as to how that might be forgiven or otherwise dealt with subject to taxation issues. So, so the, um, the fix for the, um, I guess the, the, the kids and the, the in-laws and the, with the, the rate of marriage or splits, um, these days it's, um, it's going through the roof. So is that a fix that you can a hundred percent fix in regards to keeping money in the family, um, passing money down to, to the kids and ensuring that, that money stays in that line of bloodline, I guess. Mm-hmm. Is, is there ways to 100% fix that this day and age or, or not really if you plan early enough? Paul, you know that lawyer's never going to get 100% guaranteed. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we have court battles. That's, that's because the law, the law unfortunately keeps changing, yeah. both from a parliamentary yeah. point of view and the way that's judges good. interpret it. But yes, there are mm. very good solutions in terms of lineal descendant protection of assets 
and structures around that. Uh, if I if I talk in general terms, because obviously it's very yeah. specific to every yeah. scenario, the the strategies generally are around the estate planning in the wills, and there's two parts to understand. So first of all is people get confused as to what a will actually relates to. It relates to the assets held by the person that's deceased in their own name. So you might own a car in your own name, you might own a house in your own name, might have a bit of a share portfolio in your own name. But generally, if you've come out of a business background and then you've exited, most of your wealth will be in trusts and companies. And in trusts and companies, those aren't assets that are technically owned by you. Mm. If we look at both of those, a company, what's ma- what matters is the shareholders. Yep. Who are the shareholders? They may be you individually, highly unlikely. They're most likely going to be a trust. And then what's the, what's the trust? The trust ultimately is linked to the appointer and principal. That's the person that effectively controls that trust. They can remove the trustee who is the legal, uh, benefit, a legal holder of the trust assets and ultimately, they have that controlling power. That's the appointer and the principal. So in that estate planning process, it's very important to identify who is the appointor principal and who is the shareholder that you are going to leave responsible and controlling the vast majority of your wealth. And how does that play into making sure it's held in your lineal descendant line? And that, that's Sorry. an interesting conversation, right? So we've yeah. been having this conversation as a family. Um, and it becomes even it whilst we un- seem to understand that while we're in business but we still in business we still see ourselves as the controllers of the cash flow mm-hmm. even though it's the company or the trust that's doing it it's the mindset is I'm controlling that cash flow and but when you then have a conversation about well what happens if I die it's like well obviously I can deal with that in my will right but as you just said mm-hmm. it's just not going to happen in almost 100% of cases for successful businesses. And so then it's that mindset, and I, I don't know whether this is a common thing, but certainly in most clients, if I have a conversation about general estate planning principles, they say, ideally, what I want to do if I die, I, I want to leave it to my spouse, assuming that's on good terms, and if they die, I just want it split equally amongst the kids, um, which is a fantastic starting point, right? But really hard, and particularly if you have more than one kid. <laughs> And particularly if it's uh, obviously uh, multiple different marriages and different blended families and different ages and different priorities. So the discussions on that front are are always fascinating and interesting. But what we try to do is profile what the risk is for each child. Because that's what you're trying to do. You're, You're trying to preserve a significant amount of wealth for future generations. So therefore, the risk is that there might be a decision maker that is deciding to use that wealth in a way that erodes it. Mm-hmm. and dissipates it. So you're trying to understand that, and the discussions you normally have, and they're difficult conversations. Absolutely. You know, you know, do, do any of your children have an addiction? Mm-hmm. And those addictions it can be very broad, from you know, gambling uh, through to making poor choices uh, with drugs and various other influence, people that they're influenced by. You know, what is their, their business risk? Are they in business? Do they take big gambles? Do they have a lot of personal guarantees? Are they likely to have a scenario where creditors are chasing them? Uh, what is their professional risk? Some people are involved in certain high-risk professions that whilst have, they have a degree of insurance, there is still a gap and still a way that someone might challenge them and, and that could be issues there. Uh, 
the other aspects are around how do we have the legacy part? Yeah. Do, they, do they believe in the same legacy value that you do? Will they, in fact, carry out the intentions that you had and also the spousal risk for that child as well? So they're all, they're all a cluster. Then the other overlay is how do the children amongst themselves get along? Yep. Yeah, that we, I mean, we've, we've had that discussion ourselves in, in our family and I think this is really important is that for the people making will, it's fine to have those discussions um, of um, where the money's going to go to the, the kids, for example. But I think it's really important that they get the kids in, not necessarily involved in the decision making, but let them understand this is what we want and to happen. And this is how we believe it's going to work. And this is how we, we would like this to work. So at least the kids are there can see, well, this is what mum and dad wanted and they're going to be likely to run down that track. Because everything's not going to be split. In a lot of cases, can't be split no. evenly as long as it's fair and, and reasonable, then that, that's fine. Big believer in that. I'm a big believer in a family meeting uh, or a series of meetings to discuss the intentions of that estate planning strategy. I think there's nothing like the family sitting down and hearing it directly mm. from either all perspectives mm. as to why this is being put in place, how it operates, what some of the nuances are from a technical point of view, but also what the intention is behind it and what they're hoping to achieve. And if through that process, there is uncertainty, there's questions asked, there's parties that aren't happy, you're better off knowing early. But conversely, also, it avoids all the questions later on when someone passes away and suddenly it's a surprise that it was left this way. They didn't understand that there were trusts, there were companies, they don't understand why it's been done this way, how they're expected to make decisions by majority or jointly or severally. All those issues that arise immediately after someone passing can be easily avoided with some conversation before, hmm. highly recommended. The um, we spoke about um, you know the business owners selling their business, generally highly involved in the community and being community focused. Um, and you spoke earlier about people that come with large sums, sums of money and they have enough money to do what they want to do and leave to the kids. But then um, they've also got this, as I said, community minded focus. Is the area of putting money aside for I guess a community or a charitable trust or or, or any type of philanthropy. Sorry, mm. <laughs> bit of a tongue twister for yeah, myself yeah. with a lisp. Um, do you see that a bit? And is uh, those structures common for, for for business owners that 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 sell and have been highly successful? That is all part of that conversation, and there's a range of options on that. There's the the option where you pick your two or three favourite charities and you donate to them during your lifetime and you may also leave them a specific donation in your will so that's very clear you're fulfilling the objectives to organizations that you believe are delivering what you have a passion for the other end of the spectrum is you create your own yeah yeah you know it's a conversation we have quite often but creating your own is not easy no. there is obviously the the costs of setting that up but costs are one thing it's actually having the resources and the day-to-day -day drivers to make that organization achieve what you've set it out to do and for it to be sustainable for the long term and not just relying upon you. And what happens when you pass away and you know the children that you might leave in control don't have that same passion. Uh, there are some taxation structures around that that can be advantageous, um, private ancillary funds, yep. so PAFs as they know known. But at the end of the day, for me, it's really about ensuring your objectives align with long-term sustainability. 
and quite often it's to be honest it's easier just to donate to your favorite charities yeah, okay. avoids a lot of hassle avoids a lot of issues and you know with certainty that it's happening yeah yeah one of the other things i just want to come back to um and i wonder if this is common as well I'm, my guess is it is you talked about um as people have profile or these things are become public and suddenly people realize that there's money that that there's opportunities, opportunistic people that potentially will have a swing in the courts in whatever way. I'm also assuming that there's opportunistic people who will pitch all sorts of harebrained mm. ideas. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. To these individuals. How, how is that as common as I expect that it is, unfortunately? And, and what is the sort of process that people can be thinking about to do yeah. that other than obviously talking to advisors of whatever nature that's right it's a fine line right because generally a lot of business people are risk takers so yep. they're always looking for that next opportunity so it depends on that individual you know they are actually proactively looking for those opportunities and they're open to it a lot of it comes down to the trusted advisor circle yep. if it's been sourced through their trusted advisor group people that they've known for a long time they know that they share a similar risk profile they also share the fact that they're not being pushed into a particular product with urgency that is the key so it's making sure that you know your clients and parties are aware of the potential threats and they go through a proper process they have some advisors around them that help them to give some views on those opportunities mm -hmm. and then they can make an informed decision it's when people get pressured into that environment and have to make the call but to be honest, the, the biggest risk is family and friends that yeah, are yeah, asking no, yeah. for money for their startups and their ideas, yeah. uh, which then comes back to that whole estate planning process, right? And for me, the decisions that need to be made there really is who do you trust to control where your majority of wealth is held? Yep. And the discussion we always have there is who do you trust, but who also has capability and skill and who can ensure when difficult decisions need to be made, they will be made and communicated well. That's not an easy skill set to find. So quite, and then what's the right age at which the children should be in that role and be given that responsibility and potentially also have that exposure? So that, they're the two key decisions that need to be made and it's, it's not, there's no right answer. You know, and there's quite often discussion about having a professional advisor as a co-controller slash executor slash principal appointor to make sure that they balance those decision makings until a certain point that the children reach. And there the discussion is, is it 25? Is it 30? Yep. Is it 35? Is it 40? Those are generally the junctures that we are oh. talking about in these scenarios. Maybe 15 years ago, 21 used to come yeah. up, but I haven't seen that at least for the last decade. It's very much now 25 to 40. What's the right time for children to assume that control decision-making role and how do they then do that? Is it jointly if there's more than, which means if there's more than two, more than one, then two need to agree or if there's three, the three need to agree or is it by majority? And what's the dynamic implications if you do majority and one disagrees and you've mm. got three? So they're all the factors that need to be considered based on the profile of the children, the family group, the legacy, the intention, looking at the financials and the way the funds are flowing. So it's not as simple as I want to test from your trust in my will, whack one together yeah. and we're done. Yeah. 
the days of doing that are, are far gone. It's an examination of the accounts, the, the Div 7 loans, the director loans, the shareholder loans, where, where and how would these funds flow and how could they be attacked if there was a child that may be influenced or otherwise or have one of these risk elements come into play that desperately wants to get in and crack into that protection measure that's been put in place for your grandkids. Mm. Mm. But one of those events has occurred where they now really need that money and they're finding a way in. So that needs to be thought through and considered. So quite often what people come in is an expectation that you can get a very simple will done and you can maybe throw in a bit of a testamentary yeah. trust and away you go. But if properly considered and deeply delved into to make sure that your family's wealth is in fact protected on a generational basis, there is a lot to consider and it's a, it's a process and you need to work through that process in steps. Yeah, and I think the other part to that is it's you can do, for example, as we have done as a family, do all the best in estate planning in the world and then 10 years down the track when you're sitting there looking at it, you go, well, oh, hang on a second. <laughs> that, that estate planning prompted us to take this action and create these entities for this purpose, which at the time of the first thing, they were massively imbalanced. And now, now they're very different. And so suddenly what was unbelievably good estate planning needs tweaking and tightening, right? So I think that's what I'm getting from all of this is part, everything's part of a journey, yep. right? So the sale process is a journey. It's finding whether they're is someone to transition to or whether it's a sale. There's documenting and then it's managing that after. And then, but even after it's done, it's not done because time will change. Most people, my guess is there's a lot, the vast majority of people who do a transition are still around for a long period of time post the transition. So the wealth is increased further, divided differently. So there's always things to revisit this. Is that a fair tip? As I said at the top, plan, Execute, mm. reformulate. Yeah. And it's that reformulation that looking back at intervals and junctures and going, is this still my intentions? Is this still fit for purpose? Is this still the right outcome I'm looking for? Because we know time changes everything. Yeah. And what sort of time frame should people be, be reviewing things like that? Because generally speaking, you know, you, I would imagine you, you've sold the business, got the cash in, you've all intentions to do the right thing along the way in estate planning and sorting out, but then, you know, that's done. Ten years later, you're you're still kicking, still having a good time. Once it's done, I know you're saying thing, things change, but is there a trigger that um, people should think about to review these things or it's just, you know, what what can trigger someone to say, right, let's look at this every five years or every three years or, or is there a time frame you should be looking at or you just wait till something, an event happens in your life and then you go, right, let's... Let's make a change there. Maybe two parts. What should happen is annually you should individually think about it and professionally three to five years is probably the recommended window to come and have a chat. What happens in reality for most yeah. people <laughs> is an event, yeah. spousal separation, uh, stroke, heart attack, yeah. uh, child is now potentially facing bankruptcy. All those issues come into play Age and suddenly... You know, is a big one know. all of a sudden now for us, like with clients, it's massive. Yeah. That's right. And at the end of the day, like I said, it comes back to what's your guiding principles. If you are focused on planning, then you will be thinking about these things. And I know it's hard. There's so many things in life that we need to do. And it's a big list that keeps getting added to. And I thought technology was going to help us, but <laughs> I think it's just adding more stuff. 
But at the end of the day, this is very important. Mm. If you are focused on your business, you're focused on a particular lifestyle, you put in all that effort, you just need to continue to have a very good structure around ensuring everything you built up and the legacy you're leaving behind is not lost. And I, th- I think it comes back to um, the very first topic we spoke about, or stage one, the early stage, where you, say, where you speak about getting good ad- advice early. It's almost like you need the good advice the whole way along because if you engage someone like yourselves, for example, we'll give you a pat on the back, you know, you, you, you set up the estate, I would imagine a good advisor would probably do the check-in on, on their behalf and say, hey, look, it's been three years, we're just checking in, see if anything's changed, and make that call. Something small like that can make a huge difference from an advisor point of view. Absolutely. I think a relationship-based firms and organisations, I believe, are the ones that are going to continue to be sought after and attractive across any professional service firm. I couldn't agree more. That, that is the key. And those firms, they invest in that relationship. They ask those questions they touch base with you about where life is at, what is it looking like for you, has anything changed? And they understand who you are. They understand your risk profile. They understand the way that you have an intention to leave and do things. And hopefully that ensures that the advice you get is of the highest quality, but it's ultimately good for you. And that good guidance is important for everything. And I think that it's not only the good firm doing, say, for example, your firm, McDonald's, doing the legal bit or, you know, if it were us doing the financial planning or XYZ accountant doing the accounting, it's understanding when we have a mutual client that if something comes up, like I was at a funeral yesterday, right, and we we're at a wake and you know, it's always terrible, especially when people go too soon, but chatting around and just talking to a bunch of people as you do in a community like this as everyone's interconnected and... I ended up having a conversation with another professional advisor who has a mutual client. We've worked really well together over a long period of time. And he goes, you know what, you know, you were here, I spotted you, I was going to ring you tomorrow, we need to sit down and talk about this because this has come up that you're probably not aware of, but it's going to influence you as well. And I think it's that circle that you talked in the first episode about that circle of trusted advisors. I I personally believe, and, you know, I, there's no one has a mortgage on intelligence and but there are certain people that are very good at doing certain things. And if you can surround yourself, I think you used the analogy of a health plan mm. last time. Mm. Everyone has a skill set. And I think for most people who are successful in life, whether it's in any shape, they have a team of people. And all of this journey is the team is better than the individual, right? And Jason, you'll, uh, you'll be happy to know that I saw my nutritionist yesterday <laughs> to get an update on my, uh, on my awesome. plan, on my eating plan. And uh, she actually had some very good recommendations, two or three extra things. Um, you know, every couple of years I do the same thing. Yeah. Uh, and you know what? Every time it surprises you, but you know, science, knowledge, it keeps progressing and you also keep aging. So what's appropriate at a point in time for a nutritional plan changes. So yeah. get, get, a, get good advice, be around a team of trusted advisors. They are going to be part of your success. And I've seen that more often than not. Yeah. Look, be just... Um, just a little bit off, top, off topic. Have you seen cases, and I know it's all about doing the planning, but Kate, the pe- there are cases where people just don't do the planning, right? And it's it's too late. Um, off the top of your head, and I'll put you on the on the spot here, but have you seen cases where people have sold and been really successful, but had nothing in place, and then it's just all come undone like that in a hurry? Where whether it's been um, litigation or, or or whatever, or they've just made bad decisions, or or um, marriage splits, whatever. Few, I've seen a few different scenarios mm. and I'll, I'll try to just talk to them out in yeah. general terms. Yeah. 
I've seen the scenario where there's been a warranty claim <gasps> by the buyer in the subsequent period after. And so what that means is when you sell your business, you make certain warranties that it, the, the business has, a, has the appropriate licenses, yeah. that it's paid all the wages in accordance with the employment laws, that it's complied with all taxation, you know, and, and so forth, that owns all its assets. And occasionally and sometimes you see that certain, despite going through it with clients, you know, sometimes something comes out later and there is a claim made and that claim can be significant. It could be the whole amount that you received. Yep. And so part of what you may or may not still have. That's right. Because, you know, normally you would give a personal covenant for all those warranties Mm -hmm. and you'd be personally liable. So part of trying to negotiate those deals is trying to minimize those risks as well. And there's some strategies around warranty claim limits, both in terms of time and value and the process in which the claim needs to be notified. But assuming that's made, which has happened on a few occasions, that's not a good scenario to be in and very stressful and... And you obviously have to then get involved in a long litigious process. Uh, spousal separation is definitely one that does come up. Mm-hmm. And it's, that's a very traumatic process at that point after the sweat and tears. And you've got to that point and it better deal is what it is. And yep. part of trying to realize it's a risk and how do you manage that. And, and then the other part is post-death and family provision claims. Yep. So that is a claim made by a dependent, usually a child or potentially a spouse, that they have not been provided for adequately under the will. And that that is a sadly growing space. And we have seen numerous claims in that space, particularly the, the wealthy estates. There's, there's a considerable mm-hmm. risk and you see that play out. One of the challenges is, is that if someone makes a claim, then the costs of that are borne by the estate. So it's not as though, for many people, it's not costing them anything, other than obviously they're paying their lawyer as they go along, but then there is the payment by the estate. And so what it means is you're then in that stash. That goes back to the conversation we had, get the family together, yep. mm. explain to them why. And the reason we tend to see a lot of those claims, because no one did that. Yeah. Yep. You know, child A thought... They were going to get everything because there'd been a few conversations at the last Christmas dinner. And child B, well, they were heard something else at Easter, but no one had got everyone together and explained this is how it was going to work. Mm -hmm. And suddenly small miscommunications can blow up into significant legal disputes. But for me, the saddest part of that is the family relationship breakdown. You know, you've got... What have you spent your life doing? You're trying to create wealth for our, you know, your family. And if at the end of the day, it results in your family no longer being family, what was it all about? Well, I've actually seen some examples of where the matriarch, patriarch of the family has made decisions to exit, to, to create a transition, to actually avoid that outcome mm, mm, right mm. Have, have done it set it up and actually in a lot of in some cases given away a whole bunch of cash yep. mm. i mean there's the i mean the the one that's in the press is talked about is you know bill gates who he bears and he's given a whole bunch of money away because he didn't want to in his mind destroy the his legacy and mm. his generational line because of because of wealth so it's a it's an interesting twist on the, the same thing 
wealth brings its own dilemmas. Doesn't let's it put just, it that way. Yeah. Mate, it's um it's been fascinating again. Time time flies. It's been, you know, a great conversation. Um, thank you very much for coming in. I don't know whether there's anything we missed this time. We cover off most things this time, mate. There's always plenty, but uh, <laughs> an absolute pleasure always. Great talking to you guys. And this is a, a topic and area that I'm very passionate about. Uh, you know, my 23 years of practice, I've seen, I've seen it all. And unfortunately, it all comes down to if you'd planned, you mm. would have mitigated that risk and the probability would have been a lot lower. And, you know, it's great that you're putting these podcasts out. It's, you know, educating and informing your clients and others in the community. And hopefully there's people out there that are making good decisions right now absolutely i couldn't agree hopefully more. there's people out there listening to this yeah that's even better um, <laughs> <Of course. laughs> no mate it's it's been it's been great i you know it's it's wonderful to just talk about for in, for, for lots of things it comes down to planning right nothing nothing happens in a vacuum right and the more time you take to think about things generally you have a better outcome i don't care what it is in life if you if you plan and you think ahead then with purpose something good will come in most cases so i think there's some great tips in both of those episodes but i think the biggest one um, plan to be prepared and surround yourself with experts when required and hopefully that they're a team of people that you can work with over a long period of time so that things as things change you can be prepared for what may come um, so thanks again heaps for that um, as Paul alluded to at the top um, hopefully in the near very near future we have our, um, our mate booked in for a chat it'll be interesting to take a perspective of that journey from the point of view of a business owner and and I think he's got a fascinating story to tell about those ups and downs and now that transition because for a whole bunch of reasons let him share that so looking forward to that uh, we might do a little poll with some um, industries or something on Facebook and see if we can get people to guess, you know, where, where that might have come from or we'll come up, Tez will come up with something somewhere. Um, but head over to face, uh, the Wealth Radar Facebook page, let us know your thoughts on today's chats. Give uh, Luck Beer a big, uh, big thumbs up. Five um, stars. Five stars, five absolutely. Star rating, please. Yep. Uh, we'll share it on LinkedIn, so share it around. As always, let us know things we want to talk about. The hardest thing, it's great to have chats, the hardest things to think about, things that people might want to listen to. So, Thanks for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. And cheers, Lux, for you for coming back. Thanks, guys. Cheers, my brother. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and the information contained is of a general nature and may not be relevant to your particular circumstances. The circumstances of each investor are different, and you should seek advice from a professional financial advisor who can consider if particular strategies and products are right for you. In all instances where information is based on historical performance, it is important to understand this is not a reliable indicator of future performance. You should not rely on any material on this podcast to make investment decisions and should seek professional advice. Fowler's Group ABN 5710524484 is an authorised representative number 230575 and credit representative number 403265 of FYG Planners Propriety Limited ABN 5509497254 Australian Financial Services and Credit Licence Number 224543.